snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors, this is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. A is for apple, starts with letter A. B is for ball. Sweeping across generations and continents, the ABC song has been one of the most popular methods of teaching toddlers the English alphabet. Yet, in his graphical alliterative alphabet book, Animalia, Australian author and illustrator Graham Bays has no intention to dumb down the vocabulary. I would have pages like really complicated alliterations. The most complex of which was the V page. It was、uh, Victor V Vulture, the vaudeville ventriloquist, versatile virtuoso of vociferous verbosity. First published in 1986, over three million copies of the book have been sold worldwide, making it one of the most successful children's pictorial books of all time. But Graham hasn't stopped there. In his 30-plus career years as an artist, he has also created many other widely loved works, such as *The Eleventh Hour* and *Wuno's Garden*. The lush, detailed illustrations and the cleverly hidden puns that are brimming in these works have elevated the author to international stardom. I, I guess I got something right, and you know what that was? Is don't talk down to kids. Recently, this Melbourne-based artist came to China to promote his brand new Chinese publications, including *Dragon Moon*, his first ever story that was inspired by his trips to China. Our reporter Shi Yu sat down with Graham to talk about his creative career, his love for drawing animals, and how he, as an Australian writer, utilizes illustration as global language to tell a Chinese story. Let's take a listen. I know you are one of the probably most celebrated children's book authors around the world.、Mm-hmm. So I'm super curious about how and why did you start to create picture books for children? I wanted to be an artist since I was about eight years old.、Um, I first came out from England to Australia at that age, and it was a bit of a, a tough moment in a young boy's life.、Uh, suddenly, I, I had no friends,、uh, and I didn't know the schoolyard games. And I spoke with a very strong English accent, which、uh, in an Australian primary school was not necessarily a good thing. But the one thing, even then, that I was interested in and could do reasonably well was draw. So any kid who is put in that position、uh, starts, you know, if if, if If they're good at something, you start doing it to carve out your niche in the playground. And for me, it was art. Within a couple of years,、uh, I was the kid in school who was, you know, good at art in inverted commas. And from then on, if if anyone said, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" It was artist. It was never writer, never author.、Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, I went through college, did a graphic design course,、uh, entered the. Wonderful, wacky world of advertising, and hated it. The wheels <laughs> fell off my life.、Um, I was getting paid, but I had no interest in what I was doing, and it showed. Went through three jobs in about eighteen months. Got fired from the third one for incompetence, because、uh, I was—I was just doing rubbish work because I just didn't had no interest. But I'd been keeping myself sane in the evenings by just doing pictures、uh, for myself, my own edification. I was taking those. I then took those around to publishers. Um, to get work doing book jackets or maybe illustrating somebody's you know, story, did one or two of those, and it, it was better, a lot better than advertising. 
but I realized that if I was actually to write one of these stories, then I could really draw what I wanted, what was in my head, my imagination. So I wrote a story called My Grandma Lived in Gooley Gulch, which was focused on Australian animals, and um, the guy who'd been giving me work doing other uh, publishing kind of jobs liked it and published it. So suddenly I wasn't just an artist, I, w I was an, uh, an author illustrator, as it was called. And really I've just done that now for the last 35 years. So when you start to create and write your own stories, do your children serve as some kind of inspiration for your books? No, our, our own kids. I think I started uh, doing books for, for kids uh, way before I had my own children and, and, and I've done it long after they've had any interest in, in picture books at all. Their own sort of reaction to me over the years has been quite comical to watch. Um, at some stages of, of their growing up, it was kind of cool to have a dad whose big books would be known by their friends and at other times it was just the most embarrassing thing you know in the world for them and they would sort of walk 10 steps behind me in case you know there was any connection made um, but now they just treat me with this monumental indifference which I think is just charming and which I actually really um, you know to re relish uh, they've got their own lives they're all involved in creative pursuits of one sort or another and I think it's now we're sort of just watching them as uh, as creative beings and getting such joy so so all along I realized that the kid that I was writing for was really me. I'm the, I'm the big kid in the family, not them. <laughs> <laughs> you, you said that when you were a kid, you, know, you want to be an artist, you mm. start with the image. Mm. So when you decide to write a new story, does the image come to you first or is the storyline comes to you first? Almost always it's, uh, it's image first. I've been lucky enough to travel pretty widely through my you know, writing career doing book tours and stuff like that but also any time when we had you know, free moments we would you know buy an air ticket and go somewhere new and every time I go somewhere new I know in advance that I'm going to be inspired in some way and it always happens uh, twice to uh, East Africa uh, first one came up with the waterhole and the second trip inspired a book called Jungle Drums we went to um, Cambodia and saw the ancient temple ruins of Angkor Wat and the book was The Last King of Angkor Wat. Most recently, been traveling in China. Um, initially, I uh, was invited to come to Beijing uh, by the Australian uh, Embassy uh, to be participate in um, Australian Writers Week here in conjunction with the, with the Beijing Book Fair and took the opportunity to you know, have a look around and sure enough inspiration struck again so once again a book came out of that experience so they're called Dragon Moon um, there every book seems to be initially speaking to me as an artist and then I think wow I would love to illustrate this so I will then concoct a story to allow me to do that but what is your working process like do you you know have the image and write it down or how yeah. do you create your own artwork when that inspiration strikes, immediately I'm, I'm writing and drawing and scribbling and thinking and talking. I, I travel every time I can with my wife. She's a great sort of sounding board, the, you know, the power behind the throne. Um, and together, you know, the, the, uh, we, we sort of talk about this and the ideas for me gradually you know, coalesce. Sometimes I've already got the book very, very clearly in my mind, even before we take the flight home. Uh, but then there's another a long, long process of, of refining that and eventually doing the illustrations because I even though I'm visually inspired 
you have to get your story straight first. So I spent a lot of time developing you know, the, the text and also introducing layers of meaning. One of the fundamental things that I try and put into all of the books is, is entry points for different age uh, kids or you know, people with just different experience. So a very young child might understand one book uh, in quite a simple way. Uh, an, older one, an older child or that same child when they grow older will see something else in it. But crucially, the parent of that child who I, who I hope is, is reading with the kid, at least at the very young uh, age kid, um, is getting something out of it genuinely at another level. There's nothing worse, and I know this from a bitter experience of reading with my own kids. Sometimes they want a book, and I think, oh, that book again? Because you know, it does nothing for me. I'm not interested in it. But if there's a book which the parent is actually going on the same journey of discovery and getting their own, you know, sort of surprises and, and, and joy from, that can be sensed by the child. They're very sensitive, you know. If you're bored, they, they know. Uh, and so that, that really genuine sharing is terribly powerful. And everybody knows the value of getting kids uh, involved in books early because it's the beginning of everything in terms of education in their lives. Um, that can be engendered. They can get a great love of books when they see that you, as a parent, are also loving books. And I noticed some of your books, they have like layers layers of message hidden behind. So I was wondering, do you have any, I don't know, specific age group or target audience you want to, you know, deliver a message to them? I think the messages in the books are generally for the older age group. Maybe The Waterhole is a good example. This is a book inspired by that first trip to Africa. And initially, I, I thought, wait, what a great idea for an um, accounting book. One rhino comes to the waterhole, then two, some other animal, three, all the way up to ten. And I thought a little drama can happen where the waterhole shrinks smaller and smaller until there's nothing left. Wow, what's going to happen? Drama. Then, of course, the clouds gather, rain falls, the waterhole is replenished, cycle of seasons goes on. Simple level for a young child, that's absolutely fine. All the hidden animals in the book uh, were for the next sort of level of, of child uh, because they, they, they're, you know, some of them are quite uh, sort of hard to find. But I decided to put a checklist across the top and the bottom of every page. There's a running kind of freeze, if you like, silhouettes of each of the animals which is in that page to find, and also their names in very, very small print. So it becomes a kind of a natural history lesson for a slightly more advanced child. You, then you realise that in fact it's the waterhole isn't found is, isn't sort of fixed in Africa. The first page is a rhino, Af and all the animals, hidden animals, are African. But on the page that follows, the two tigers. So that now we're in India, and all the animals there are from the Indian subcontinent, on and on through the world. Towards the end of the, of the book, when the um, there's a big drop of rain that falls, the beginning of the rainy season, if you like, and this is a huge, big, bulbous drop. And if you look at it carefully, you can see that it represents the world represented through a drop of water when the rains begin to pelt down the as it as the puddle spreads out across the dry land it's in the shape of the continents mm -hmm. uh, and then when the final celebratory page where you know the waterhole is replenished and all the animals are there back at the waterhole the one rhino two tigers all the way up through seven pandas to ten kangaroos you can find them all there, but the message then becomes very clear for the adult, really talking about, or for the older child for that matter, talking about uh, water as a, as a metaphor for the, you know, the, the environment as a whole, and water is its most fundamental element, and all of those creatures are the animals of the world, they're people, sharing and cherishing and conserving. Uh, but I don't expect for that message to, to be universally understood by all age groups, but it is there. Um, and it's valuable and it makes the book for me worth um, spending the two or three years it takes to make to actually be able to say something which I think is important. Yeah. 
And you mentioned about the waterhole. It kind of reminds me of Jungle Drums, Eleventh Hours, because mm-hmm. I'll just say most of your books you put this quite. Yeah. I'll just say most of your books you put this quite accurate looking, but still they have like a really human twink in their eyes, kind of animals yeah. in, in those books. <laughs> yes. So, so what fills your fascination with nature and, and the wildlife? Well, it's. I think it's 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 the recurring inspiration for me. I, I don't tend to get inspired quite so much by cities as I do by jungles. Um, the the use of animals is something that uh, is re- in in stories and fables, especially, is age old, uh, from as far back as uh, you know Aesop's fables. These are stories which feature characters, archetypal characters, like you know the innocent lamb or the the sly fox or the regal lion, etc. They're not really about animals at all. These, of course, are, um, are people, and they're ways of telling stories with messages, uh, parables, if you like, with, uh, but with an inbuilt charm that comes by using animals instead of, of people. That uh, if you told exactly the same stories with people, they become a bit didactic and a bit worthy uh, for some audiences, anyway. So this seems to me to be something which, uh, although there's a school of thought saying, or oh, anthropomorphism, giving human, you know, attributes to character to animals demeans them I don't think it does at all I think it enables us kids to make a connection with uh, wildlife in a really important way because if you make a connection uh, and you begin to empathize then you begin to care and as they grow into the future that's very important and in your opinion what makes a good children's book apart from the layers uh, which I, I think is fundamental to genuine sharing. Um, I think it's a, a, a picture book needs to, uh, it's basically made up of two things, text and pictures. And whilst there should be some overlap, you know, obviously they are connected, that you don't want to be just showing what's in the text. You, you need to be taking the text and then expanding on it and taking you know, the, the reader deeper into the, into, the, into the world, into the meaning. It was an ex- experience that uh, a friend of, of mine had many years ago where he wrote a story and then he, he was a writer, not an illustrator. He then got an illustrator involved in the project and gradually the illustrations began to do so much of the work that the text got smaller and smaller and smaller and eventually it vanished. Now the book still came out as written by and illustrated by mm-hmm. But there were no words, (laughs) because the story had been completely taken up by the artwork. So with my books, because I both do the writing and the illustrating, I'm always terribly aware of, as I, I, I do a text and it's more or less finished when I start doing the artwork, when I do begin the artwork, I'll always be revisiting the text and saying, ah, yeah, I don't need to say that anymore because the pictures show it. I think that's probably the essence of, of how picture books, to my mind at least, should work. It's like a picture is a power. Yeah, the, the picture says a thousand words. So I, if you've got a thousand and one words, uh, if you get a picture, you can just reduce it to one word. I don't think that's quite true, but you see what I mean. Mm. And, you know, sometimes I go to book fairs, meet some parents, you know, they're hunting for children's book for their kids. And then, oh, wait, 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 children's book have to have educational value. It has, mm. you know, have some young mm. children training about it. What's mm. your opinion on that? I think that's probably stronger in, in some cultures than others. I know in China, certainly there's a great focus, understandably, uh, in, um, in education the way of, of children you know getting ahead if you like in in the world and I don't shy away from that at all the thing is I think the best way of teaching anyone anything 
is for them not to even realise they're being taught. They're, they're just having fun. That's what that's what play is all about. That's what games are all about. It's teaching cooperation or fine motor skills or solving you know problems. And along the way, um, they're actually learning without realising it. I think that's the great value of picture books. Is exactly that where they will just be enjoying trying to find you know the the answer to something like the eleventh hour mystery. But along the way, they're learning you know rational you know deduction and clear thinking and observation skills. And, and maybe they're also learning cooperation if they're working as as a team within a school environment. You know, we're, we're getting one person to you know work on one sort of decoding while somebody else is you know checking on the on the detail of another page. So. There's education, educational value to be found in many, many things, uh, whether it's meant to be there or not. I'd also hasten to, to add that I'm not an educator. That wasn't my training. And I very much depend on teachers and parents taking my work and working with those kids that they know so well, uh, you know, their own children or their own pupils, and finding the best way of using the work to that advantage. You know, it constantly reminds me your award-winning alphabet book, Animalia. I know it's yeah, an sure. old question <laughs> because it has been an international bestseller for mm. almost three decades.、Mm. So, in your opinion, what make it kind of a global success? You know, for mm. children mm. around the world across generations. Well, I, I must have been nuts to have spent three years of a very young career working on that book.、Uh, looking back on it, what was I thinking? As if the world needed another English language alphabet book. It wasn't exactly a new idea, you know. But this one, I suppose, maybe I was quite naive.、Uh, I didn't do any market research. I didn't figure out, you know, what words do kids know at this age or that age. I just, I was just having fun. Again, it was that kid inside me that I was,、uh, you know, writing to and for. And I would have pages like really complicated、uh, alliterations.、Um, the, the most complex of which was the V page. It was、uh, Victor V. Vulture, the vaudeville ventriloquist, versatile virtuoso of vociferous verbosity, vexatiously vocalizing at the Valhalla Variety Venue. Now, it was suggested to me by my dear publishers in Melbourne uh, that uh, this might be a bit too tough for kids. And I went, oh. Oh no, no, no! You're getting it wrong. It's not to do with what it means. It's to do with how it sounds. That's where that's where the power lies here. And if kids don't know what vociferous or vexatious or verbosity means, they can look it up and find out. And that realizing it, I was sort of you know cre- creating a, an educational layering to the book. Yeah.、Um, and、uh, I'm I'm so grateful that the publishers went. Yeah. Okay. We get that, and and they let me publish it in that form.、Um, I've often thought that you know, in in this day and age where there's a lot more sort of thick, second thinking going on about you know markets and sort of you know sales forecasts and stuff, would that that book have survived the process? But yeah, it, over those three decades, it has still out, outstripped any other book that I've done by you know by an order of ten. So、uh, I, I guess I got something right. And you know what that was? Is don't talk down to kids. Don't assume that you know kids are just going to want to know that A is for apple, or B is for butterfly, or C is for cat.、Uh, if you aim low, that's all you'll get out of kids. If you aim above their heads, they will jump and rise to the occasion. That was Shi Yu talking with Australian writer and illustrator Graham Bays. Coming up. I was astounded in, in the in the travels that, that I've been able to do so far in China, and we've only just skimmed the surface. So I wrote the story 
coming from my own European heritage and background, and it's it's a loose kind of riff on the Ugly Duckling story. More to come, so stick around. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. You know, talking about this hidden message, it actually comes to my attention to your latest new book, Dragonborn. Yeah. You know, when I flipped through the pages, I noticed some quite interesting details. You know, like panda fish. Yeah. And and this one, the opening pages, it's so、mm. full of those details, the landscapes about Chinese bridge、mm. and everything. This was what I was able to see. I mean, I was astounded in, in the travels that that I've been able to do so far in China, and we've only just skimmed the surface. Is the the way that the old China and new China live together. You can be seeing this amazing, you know, street scene, which feels as though it's centuries old, and behind it is rising these massive skyscrapers. You then you know, get onto a, onto one of these high-speed trains and travel at 350 kilometers an hour to to the next massive city. But then there's there's, there's still you know men pushing carts by hand through the streets, and there's one shop where you can press a button and the food comes out of a slot, and right next to them is all the old-fashioned、yeah. you know fish markets and stuff, and that's great. So the, you know we did see、uh, old and new as we were travelling. This 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 vision in、uh, of my underwater kind of versioning of of China has the.、Uh, A village feeling of uh, of um, fish in a marketplace, you know, going about their daily business. And there are there are very few um, uh, sort of skyscrapers、uh, in in my little underwater world here. But there is something like, for instance, the the, the Yangtze River Bridge in Wuhan,、uh, which we we saw. And but then right next to it is Yellow Crane Tower, which is an ancient part of China. So it's a real kind of almost like a kind of a foreigner's travelogue in some ways. This book, but. Importantly, I realised that if I was to tell a story about China for a Chinese readership, I needed to be very respectful of of the way that stories and would be told here. And I worked in close collaboration with my publisher,、um, Changjian Children's Press, who are based in Wuhan, which is how we happened to be there, and、uh, make sure that the key moments of the story were represented in a, an intelligible way. And so, whilst I, I mean, I wrote the story. Coming from my own European heritage and background, and it's it's a loose kind of riff on the Ugly Duckling story of a of a fish that doesn't belong. You know, has to find out where he where he sort of fits in the world. Some of the key moments of when he leaves home, when he has the moment of sort of revelation and, and decides to head back again, were deeply discussed. Yeah, you know, to make sure that they would resonate properly. With a, a Chinese readership, in because I couldn't, I couldn't suppose that I knew how a book would be, a story would be received here in the same way as I might in Australia or perhaps America. Because you're talking about, it's kind of like the Chinese dragon version of Ugly、yeah. Duckling. So I was、yeah. wondering, what's the biggest, you know, inspiration behind it? Visually, the travel is what what has fueled the the imagery, the Great Wall, albeit an underwater version. We actually travelled through、um, part of Inner Mongolia on one of the earlier book tours,、um, and that fantastic frozen, you know, tundra. We were there in in, in winter, really sort of struck home. 
In an earlier trip, we'd been down to um, uh, Lijing, Lijiang, the Tiger ti- ti- Leaping Gorge. And uh, Lijiang. Lijiang, thank you. Uh, <laughs> frame of pronunciation is never going to be terribly good. And also to uh, Jade Dragon Snow Mountain and, and Shangri-La, places like that. So all of these images you know, just, just build in the artist's mind and you want to sort of present them. But I, I kind of in some ways appropriate them and, and don't want to just, you know, just say that's what I saw, but in some way use that to create something imaginative which will have a sort of an extra twist or level and kids will go oh wow look that's yellow grain crane tower or or that's the great wall but I've, I've sort of I've, I've sort of had my way with it if you like and you sort of juxtaposed it in, in a strange underwater setting yeah <laughs> <laughs> when I find it a Mongolian they yeah, what, what's that doing there? yeah I mean there's yurts they're classic or what's that what they're called you know the, the Mongolian you know, yurts and yet there's little sort of bubbles coming out of the window and and on the skies rather than just being that sort of you know sort of clear cold sky you actually can sense ripples and things beyond in the in the world above in the end the transition of the character moonfish who, who is sort of like the ugly duckling the, the orphan fish that's found in the weeds and grows uh, big and so sort of weird and his parents love him but all the other kids tease him so he, he leaves he returns after his you know wanderings to try and discover where he belongs and realizes the answer is where people love him and that's his parents that's his home so he heads back just in time to save the village from uh, an attack from herons the book opens with that peril and uh, they're, they're returning again and, and this is the moment when he, he leaps uh, out of the water which for a fish would be quite an amazing you know, ex- whoa kind of experience and as he does that the, the, the scales fall away and his fins turn into claws and he emerges as a dragon and this is kind of like a superhero thing going on, yeah. monkey king or, or I don't know, Transformers or something and kids really get that um, and then when he dives back into the water again having, having scared away the herons he becomes you know, back the, uh, the, uh, the fish again, Superman in his telephone booth so there's a, a lot of stuff from the east and the west which have come together in, in this telling of the book I'm not pretending that I'm a Chinese writer I'm, but I'm not, neither am I supposing that I could just tell a story and uh, expect a, a Chinese readership to, to get it without you know, a, lot of, uh, a lot of local knowledge and help I think they would definitely love it because my third page is this one. It's about oh, these yeah. little fishes. They having classes in the Chinese classroom and mm. all have those images in Chinese characters. I was mm. wondering, did you write those Chinese characters no, by that, yourself? That's, that's another great example of the fact that I, I, I explained what I wanted to do in this picture. This is when Dragon Moon is still quite young and he's at school and he's kind of ostracized. He's on one side of the classroom all by himself and all the other kids are on the other side sniggering and pointing. You can even see they, like, like they've stuck a picture on his back and he hasn't realized of him looking stupid yeah. uh, and on I, it, I wanted it to be the, a recognizable Chinese classroom so I, I said to my my editors and publishers here look you know, what goes on the board on a Chinese classroom and I'd done a little bit of, sort of looking around and sort of tried to figure out you know what it what it should be and I'd actually got it completely backwards because apparently there's a there's a there's a chalkboard on the front of the room uh, in most Chinese classroom but there's also another one on the back of the room yeah. and I'd actually got the back of the room class you know, on, on in the front and so they enlightened me and no no that's not the way to go so we then started talking about what was there uh, what would be typical how could we have a bit of fun with it um, you know mess it up a bit uh, but still make it recognizable to those to those kids no way I could have written that by myself so what it was almost like a uh, almost an editing and reverse thing where I I would sort of explain what what I thought would be fun and then they would have some ideas and together we came up with uh, with just the stuff that goes on the board it was a lovely example of collaboration 
collaboration. I noticed some of your previous book also have Chinese symbols mm. or Chinese elements, you know, panda. In panda the, especially, yeah. Panda in the waterhole, a dragon yeah. in the discovery of dragon. Yeah. So what is about the Chinese elements really appeal to you? I think I think that those books, though, that they, it was like putting a kangaroo in a book and thinking it says Australia. At some level it does, but there's a lot more to Australia than kangaroos. And I'm so aware there's a lot more to China than pandas and dragons. But, you know, it, it's a beginning, I suppose. And, yeah, the pandas are great. We had a, that's one of the inspirations uh, for this little character, Panda Fish, who, who, yes, is a, who is a little hidden hidden character that goes through all of the pages of, of Dragon Moon, was that we went out to the, uh, the, the, the panda home or sanctuary, whatever it's called, in um, Chengdu on, a, on an earlier visit. And that's just such astonishingly beautiful creatures. I mean, I've always kind of liked them, but from afar, I'd never really sort of had the chance to study them up close. As for dragons, you know, the the, con- the, the Western concept of a dragon and the Eastern concept of a dragon couldn't be more dissimilar. Um, that uh, we, you know, the West sees, you know, dragons as the embodiment of evil and yeah. everything that's bad, and, and it's the opposite in China. In the book I did, The Discovery of Dragons, a lot of years ago now, um, I kind of, in my own warped imagination, divided dragons up into into three or four different kind of you know, subgroups of European, tropical, Asiatic, and New World, um, just just because it was fun to do it. Nothing really terribly sort of real or, you know, I didn't do any research or anything. Believe me, I'm not, not a great one for that kind of thing. I was just playing uh, with uh, with the idea of dragons because they're made up creatures in all of, all of my work. I, I tend to dig into the imagination more than anything and I love just, just making things up, making up animals and worlds. That's what drives me as an artist. But with, the, with this book in particular, because the dragon is so fundamental to, you know, Chinese mythology, if we can call it that, or culture, I um, took a lot more care and attention to to try and understand the symbolism involved in the picture where uh, Dragon Moon does leap out of the water. As a dragon, um, there are even things like the, in the foreground, there are are flowers, there are are sort of peach blossoms and cherry blossoms and things like that. And I know that they have particular symbols, this particular meaning, which will be lost to an Australian readership, but which would be understood in China. Mm -hmm. So I was careful to select even my my flowers, you know, as as, which are just decoration Mm -hmm. according to to their meaning. One lovely thing that did happen with the book, though, was that uh, when, at the end of the book, I had the uh, the mother and father fish leaping out of the water mm-hmm. you know, themselves uh, in joy at the return of the, of the prodigal son, the dragon moon. And it was only later, after I'd already started drawing that image, that I became aware of the old Chinese story of the, of the fish leaping over the dragon gate. You know, this was like... Uh, just a wonderful you know, chance had I dreamt it in some way and so I really augmented that and on the on the penultimate page you see these two fish leaping out of the water yellow crane tower from Wuhan is on one side but in the distance you can actually see a dragon gate and and, the, and they're illuminated by the moon so it all sort of came together all the symbolism seemed to just be serendipitous uh, the story that I wanted to tell and a lot of the you know, sort of the elements that were already existing uh, in in the Chinese you know 
lexicon of mythology uh, was already in place. So it was, yeah, it, it felt as though it was meant to be. So in your opinion, what does Dragonmoon stand out from your other works? The big difference for me uh, is that this is the first time I've ever published a book in another language first. There's about nine titles now of my earlier works um, in Chinese which have been translated, and this one's going the other direction. It's, it's Chinese first this year right now, and uh, within the next year or two, an English language version will come out in Australia. So that's been really unusual. I think also the level of, of editorial collaboration that's gone on in this book is far higher than what I've done before. I guess I feel quite confident of you know the way of, a, of expressing a story for an Australian and American you know kids and, and adults but I just I've actually really enjoyed just I suppose letting go a little of the reins a little bit more than I usually do and taking in all these lovely ideas that have and, and really important nuances that have that have come to the story through working uh, with the publisher here. But when does English edition of the Dragon Moon come out? Would worry about reaction from your readers from English speaking countries because it's a very Chinese. Yeah. No, not worried at all. Any more than I was worried when I did a book called uh, like Little Elephants, which is set in Texas, or Jungle Drums, which is Kenya, yeah. or Last King of Angkor Wat, which is set in Cambodia, because the stories themselves are universal. The form of of the fable and so many of the stories I write, I think, take on that form, has developed. You know, I don't know where it started first or whether it. Just Just sort of sprung up, uh, you know, naturally in different parts of the world. But it's it's absolutely recognisable all over the place. For instance, like when you meet a, uh, you know, when you have encounters on the road, it's always three. It's not two. Two is not enough. Four is too many. It's always three. Uh, and these sort of like this sense of almost poetry of storytelling of the dark moment before the dawn, uh, all of these and setting up the peril. They're 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 fundamental. So I've got no doubt at all that the book will resonate for Australian readers. They won't understand some of the subtleties, but I think that's great.、Uh, they can learn just as way they had to learn what vociferous verbosity means. They can also figure out maybe what the writing on the blackboard in the schoolroom. In China means, and that would be a lovely sort of journey for them into another culture. That's got to be a good thing. Yeah, there's still some universal message here. Totally. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And look, this is one of the things that that I found traveling around in in various parts of the world talking, is that. Yeah, we're, we're we're sure we're all different. We speak different languages, but there's so much more which is similar about everyone, about kids, than there is difference. So we can celebrate those differences, of course, but we've also got to hold very close the similarities. Yeah, that's the thing that strikes me most: that kids are kids, and that goes for everywhere. Australian picture book author Green Bay is sharing with us his latest work, Dragon Moon, his first story about China. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. To learn more about China, you can follow our Facebook account China Plus, or simply download our podcast by searching the keywords "ink and quill" on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host Yang Yong. Until next time.